Bicon is a global consultancy for the life sciences. We are committed to launching pharmaceutical products that make a difference in people's lives. Our vision is to use economics for the good of humanity. In this series of podcasts, we talk to patient advocates and thought leaders to better understand the patient perspective. Our hope is that a more comprehensive understanding of that patient perspective will help to optimise drug development, expenditures and care into the future. This is the BICON podcast where we talk to patient advocacy leaders and thought experts on a particular disease to understand the burden, unmet needs, patient journey and potential future developments for diseases that may not currently have the voice they need. Today we introduce a patient advocate who will speak about Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy. So Lily, welcome to the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lily. I'm 17 years old and I have Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy. Great. So in your experience, what is the clinical manifestations that best define LHUN? So I would probably say in terms of having patient people that develop the condition. So I have complete almost blurred vision. I have bits of peripheral vision. So I'm able to notice if somebody stood there, but I'm not able to notice, for example, eye colour or things like that. But I can see that there's somebody stood there at my peripheral and centrally there's it's sort of just complete blur is sort of how people would notice how to, to describe the condition. Okay. Excellent. And what what are the populations that the disorder affects mostly? I think it's mainly young people that it's developed. I think it's actually mainly boys and girls, and it's passed down maternally, yeah, down with the maternal side of the family. Oh, interesting. And what does the average LHON patient look like normally? And, you know, would we be able to see them visually? Or is it something that you would have to know that they have in order to know that they have the disease? Um, I think... I don't stereotypically, I don't think that people with LHON would look stereotypically blind because there's still pupil recognition. Um, so your eyes will still move along to the things. And I don't think stereotypically most people look what you would class somebody like stereotypically who is blind. Um, I don't think that most people with LHON fit that stereotype because, as I said, your, your eyes will still react in the same ways as um, people with um, vision. So I think it is quite hard to notice people um, and often you can be mistaken be told that you can actually see when you can't. But because you don't look stereotypically blind, it's quite hard to, it's, sorry, quite easy to miss. Hmm. That's really interesting. I think, uh, thanks for sharing that because I think most people wouldn't have known that. And would you know any kind of current treatment paths that people follow in LHON? Are there any typical treatments that people are taking now for LHON? I think so there's a pill treatment um, where you take so many a day and there's a few gene therapies as well, but they're not, I don't think, in development. Well, in development, sorry, but I don't think they're being used I don't, I'm not too sure on their sort of status yet of where they are in the timeline of things. Okay, well, that's interesting to know. And now we're going to talk about the next section, which is about the burden of the disease. So this is really where we can discuss what for you is the, the most important burden of the disease. So about, you know, whether it's a burden for 
carers, uh, clinical burden, quality of life. So can you please just share some of your thoughts on this? So I think the condition impacts um, most every part of your life because there's so many things that you need to be able to see to do. Um, but I think it's finding different ways and new ways as such to do things. So instead of just sort of cooking how you normally would, changing the way that you do that and being more careful and having to go slow on things and so other do maybe doing your makeup for example um, having to organize things a lot more and having to know the different packagings and things like that um, so it impacts a lot of your life and going out and stuff it's a lot more challenging and the way that you do go out or the way that you do live your life is a lot more difficult because there's so many things that it does impact even going on your phone like socializing things like that because you can't understand the visual cues because you can't see it so if somebody sort of smiles at me I'm not going to smile back you know not because I'm being horrible because I can't see that um so yeah it affects a lot of things and you know starting conversations with people unless I know you're there I won't start the conversation because I don't know you're there you know um so it impacts a lot of a lot of things that you don't really think about and for example, education as well, you, know, you have to find new ways to do things and use things like screen readers rather than just opening up your textbook and doing just reading the book, you know. So, yeah, it impacts, you know, your whole whole life. Yeah, I think that that's definitely going to be hopefully something that will improve over time with, you know, treatments and, and everything like that. Um, and great. And in the next section we'll be talking about is the unmet need. So for you, what is the current unmet need? in this disease and you know what, what kind of things could be improved about the treatment of the disease okay so in terms of unmet needs i'd probably say with the treatment that i'm currently taking you have to take two tablets three times a day um so with every meal and it you know you do forget um and you do you know it, it is easy to forget um especially sort of if you're on the go and you have to take it with liquid as well um, or something with protein as well, so it digests, it properly digests essentially. So it is, you know, some, if you're on the go, you know, it's easy to forget if you're just having a quick sandwich or if you're not having a full lunch because you have mm -hmm. other food or what have you. Um, it can be easy just to forget and then you've got to have something later on to then subsidise for it and then sort of make up that missed one essentially. Yeah, so it must be difficult, you know, being on holiday because you have to always remember to take your pills. If you don't, then it's a real issue, I imagine. Yeah, so I'm, I'm type 1 diabetic as well, um, which I had before the um, long. But um, with the routine of that as well as adding another step in. And if you forget one, then you normally forget the other. Because if, you, if I put them in a routine together and you sort of forget one, then you forgot, you've messed up the whole routine. Um, because there can be a lot of correlation between sight loss and um, having type 1 diabetes with your blood glucose levels. Um, however, I wasn't in that boat. Um, it was just bad luck. Very different onsets. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. And I think maybe that, that's something as well to talk about, the fact that you have a, a concomitant disease where, you know, how do you deal with one disease and another disease at the same time? I think that's probably a, a, a huge burden as well for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, the, like with the, in terms of the diabetes, you've got to um, inject and test your blood and things like that. 
and when you can't see that can be quite difficult because especially with chest and blood you don't actually know if there's if you've actually pricked your finger properly if there's any blood on your finger so sometimes you can just see and you can't on so you prick your finger and then you can't actually see the number on the um, glucose reading um, meter either which is quite difficult then because once you've got you can't get the last step if that makes sense into a little process so that then can be challenging as well <laughs> injecting i can do myself i just have to accept that every now and then i will probably prick myself it's only a little needle so it's not too bad and then testing my blood i do have to get someone to help me because i you know i will try to do it myself but when you can't see them if there's any blood it's quite challenging in terms of the um, aspect of the unmet need, it, would you say that the doctors um, that you've spoken to, have they been knowledgeable about LHUN? And um, is there a kind of a feeling that you have a lack of awareness about the disease since it's so rare? My, I have two doctors, two sort of, yeah, doctors to do with um, Long, and they're really, really good. They're both doing quite a lot of research into the condition as well, which really does help. Um, because they have so much knowledge on and about it and they've dealt with a lot of other people with it as well which is really good because they can give such good advice and stuff and they sort of know the challenges that I may face in a few years time so they'll always offer to help and things like that or if there's um, if they want for example to do with school and exams and provisioning for that they will always offer to you know write letters and stuff to send to the school and then, um, to the exam room, sorry, and things like that. But yeah, I think they're really knowledgeable and they're doing a lot of clinical research as well. So they know a lot of, to do with the gene therapy, sorry, and things like that, um, that they're sort of trying to build and stuff like that. So they're really, they are really knowledgeable in that sort of area and they've been really, really supportive, yeah. Great. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine maybe that wasn't always the case because when you were first diagnosed, was the diagnosis relatively straightforward or did it take a long time for you to find the right doctor that knew what condition you had? Oh, it took a long time. Yeah. Um, the doctors at my general hospital, they had no clue. You know, I was told multiple times that I've got a brain tumour, that I've got an, um, on early onset MS, um, which obviously is quite terrifying things to hear especially if your mum there as well. Um, and they, they just sort of just thought I was lying, really, just thought that I was being overdramatic. And they just didn't really know what to do at all. And we sat in waiting rooms for hours and nobody sort of came and helped us. You know, no, nobody made sure we were OK. Nobody asked if, you know, things like that. And it was around the time as well that I was sitting in my GCSEs. Um, so it was all very chaotic because I was trying, I wanted to go to school to, you know, do them. But I had to go to the hospital appointments, you know, and all sorts of things like that. Um, but yeah, it, did, it took a long time because they just didn't, you know, go anywhere. And we had one doctor one time just say to us that he doesn't know, but he's got laser eye surgery to go to, so he's off. And that was it. Um, but yeah, we've had a lot of things, you know, it's not been easy to get to the doctors that we're at now. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of waiting, a lot of being told that you're just wrong or that you're dramatic or that um that it's this or that it's that and um, quite terrifying things to hear really um but yeah when we got did get in contact with the doctors after we sort of knew sort of after we thought we knew what it was yeah it got a lot better and then we sort of just took over and we're like no this is it 
we've seen this before, you know, and sort of the symptoms and they sort of put the whole picture together, if that makes sense. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting to hear like, your journey and how it took us such a long time for you to get the that right results and that right um, diagnosis. And just going back to the treatment options and the current treatment you're on, what is the name of that treatment, if, you, if you're aware? And, you know, um, how, are, how are you affected by it? How does it make you feel? Um, so the name of the treatment is Idebenone Raxone. Um, yeah. Hope I've got that right. I don't really tend to get any side effects from it at all, really. I don't think that, I think the main sort of one that I used to get was sickness, um, morning sickness, but I think that was more to do with the disorientation I had from losing my sight so quickly um, that it made me really, yeah, just really disorientated in the morning because I'm really dizzy uh, rather than being from the treatment. Great. And do you know of any future treatment options that, that could be available? Um, are you kind of read up about that? I think there's gene therapies being developed, but because of the gene that I have got, it's so rare that it wouldn't qualify for the therapy, for the specific gene therapies, because I think I'm literally one of two in the world with this specific gene. So there's, you know, nobody's going to develop gene therapy for two people, but there are, I think, gene therapies being developed that can cover a wide range of them. I'm not too sure exactly how it works, but I know there are quite a lot in development currently. And I know that, you know, they'll help a lot of people. So. Interesting. Yeah, because I've seen that there's a lot of um, different types of genes that are affected that result in LHUN. So you're saying that for your particular gene, they're so rare that they wouldn't necessarily develop the actual gene therapy for yeah, that? Yeah, there's literally one of two. <laughs> Okay. And in terms of Raxone, um, has that been really helping you in terms of your vision and has that been improving your symptoms? It, 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 I have seen some improvements with it. Not, you know, anything major or life changing, but I have seen some improvements in my vision, which definitely is good. You know, gives you a bit of hope. Yeah. But, um, it's not been anything huge, but it has been improvement, you know. So it's still something, I guess, yeah. Oh, oh, it's great to hear that. And the next section that we'll talk about will be the importance of patient advocacy groups within this disease area. So are you aware of any patient advocacy groups and how have they helped you in your patient and your treatment journey? Um, I think there are some patient advocacy groups. I've not really been too involved in them personally, but... I know that they are helpful for lots of people who do want support and things like that. And, you know, who do want to talk to other people and things, you know. Yeah. And have you been able to speak to any other patients that have had this disease and about their journey? I've spoke to a few people with the same um, condition. It is helpful, you know, to get ideas of how they do things and how they work and tips, I guess, from them and sort of share things and they can give you recommendations of what they like and what's worked for them and things like that which you know is definitely helpful. Great and is there anything else that you'd like to share um, in terms of your experience you know any uh, advice for people that have this disease or that know people that have this disease and how they can improve their journey? 
I think in terms of advice, sort of just have a bit of hope and that it will get easier, you know, um, once you find ways to work and ways to sort of live, live again, you know, it does definitely get easier. Yeah, like it will be rough at the beginning, um, but once you do find your little ways, your little things that do and don't work for you, you know, it definitely does get easier. And, you know, you'll be told random stuff that you just think that's not ever going to work for me. And you try them because, well, you know, you've got nothing to lose. Why not? But, you know, there will be things that people tell you that just just won't work. Um, but then there will be things that people tell you that will be really, really helpful. And, yeah, probably you just got to have a lot of confidence as well in yourself and just, you know, do what works for you um, rather than let other people sort of walk all over you. Yeah, you've got to sort of, you can't be a wallflower, that's it. Um, you've got to sort of stand on your own two feet and, you know, do what works for you and advocate for yourself, you know, make sure that if something isn't working, you know, tell people because, you know, nobody's going to know unless you say because people can't read minds, you know, like let people know if it doesn't work. Um, yeah, just have confidence in yourself, probably be my advice. Yeah, to, to be your best ad, own best advocate, I think. Great. Okay, well, is there anything else that you'd like to share or any other thoughts you'd have? No, I don't think so. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a very interesting conversation on LHUN and look forward to seeing what the future holds in this area. From everyone at FICON, we'd like to thank you for your time and listeners, thank you for listening.